I, I cannot separate the idea of what a hamburger tastes like and lighter fluid tastes like because my dad used to pour <laughs> enough on it to just, you know. Mm, so good. Yeah. Mm. He wasn't big on the charcoal chimney, huh? Because that was the, that was a revelation for me, getting a charcoal chimney instead of the lighter fluid. I had never even heard of a charcoal chimney until I was an adult. I did not know it existed. I thought everything just tasted like butane. I'm Charlie Arnott with Look East and the Center for Food Integrity, dedicating my career to keeping food trustworthy. And I'm Susan Schwally, president of the Food and Beverage Practice at the MPD Group. I'm fascinated by why people eat and drink what they do. And I'm Kevin Ryan, your resident food nerd and founder of Malachite Strategy and Research. I've developed innovation and strategy for dozens of CPG brands from Annie's to Old El Paso. And we are the three squares dishing on the food industry. And thanks again to General Mills for their support of this podcast. Hey, this week, in honor of summer and our upcoming phenomenal guest, we are all about grilling and barbecue on this episode of Three Squares. Maybe, Kevin, we should just talk about how Charlie was entertaining us the whole weekend, really. It's true. It's true. Got to see every... Pictures of his meat claws. Yeah. But I do not look like Hugh Jackman, unfortunately. So (laughs) (laughs) Only in the hands... Only in the hands. I may actually be a little worried about Charlie, our co-host, I have to tell you. Why? Because he didn't think he looked like Hugh Jackman? No. Well, first, he said that uh, Ryan Reynolds would play him in a biopic. That's what I, yeah, yeah. And then this weekend, he sent us pictures of him with meat claws and saying he thinks he looks like Hugh Jackman, Wolverine. Right. Yeah, but was that not looking delicious? Your meat claws, it looked good. It did look good. I will admit, it looked really good. Yeah. yeah. It's true. It, yeah. It was yeah. good. And we're actually going to have leftover butt at the lake house tonight. So there you go. Charlie, you can close your ears for this. I actually barbecued some cauliflower. Oh, that's okay. Okay, good. Okay. I thought maybe that was going to be, that would be the end of it. We wouldn't talk anymore. I thought maybe. No, 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 no. Grilled, grilled, I mean, yeah. and grilled pineapple. And now did you grill it or barbecue? When you say barbecued it, how did you prepare it? Cook it. Um, I mean, I guess I, I was speaking of grilling. I, I mean, I, I took and I cut a, the cauliflower into steaks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Big steaks. And then I marinated it and then I put it on the grill and I cooked it slow. And then I also did a watermelon. If you've ever done that too. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love grilled pineapple. That's one of my favorites to do just as a, yeah, yeah. The sugar and the, the way it caramelizes, it's yeah. quite delicious. It's yeah. grilling season. We've got a great guest, Adrian Miller. And I'm really excited about that because Adrian digs into a topic and he really brings to life the story of what is happening around barbecue in this case. Have either of you caught um, High on the Hog on Netflix? I have not, but I look forward to because uh, what I've heard about Adrian is amazing. It's a wonderful show and he's featured quite a bit in uh, episode three. And it's interesting because he talks about not only the past African-American foodways and black food culture, but he also talks about what's happening today. And they visit with um, some chefs that are doing some really unique things, uh, drawing on, um, you know, the past in African-American foodways in American culture. Our table discussion with Adrian Miller is next. At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at GeneralMills.com. Charlie and Kevin, I am really excited today about our guest. Adrian Miller is with us. Hi, Adrian. Hey, what's up? So, guys, Adrian is a food writer, a James Beard Award winner on your first book out of the gate, I believe. Undergrad at Stanford, International Relations, Georgetown Law. 
special assistant to President Clinton and the first freestanding office in the White House to address issues of racial, religious, and ethnic reconciliation. You are on the board for the Southern Foodways Alliance, which everyone should check out. You are a certified barbecue judge who lives in Denver, Colorado, which that's a discussion in and of itself. And then along the way, you decided even you were doing all of this and with your background, I'm going to write the definitive book on soul food. And you went like toured like 1400 restaurants. <laughs> then after winning the James Beard Award, you said, I'm going to research and write a book about all of the African-American chefs that have been in every presidential kitchen in every administration. And then that's not enough. I'm a barbecue judge. I'm going to write Black Smoke, the history of barbecue in America. Adrian, welcome. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I should have you as my PR person. <laughs> the only thing I would change about your intro is I'm a recovering attorney. That's the only oh, thing. A recovering I would attorney. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I live in Fort Collins, like right down the oh. street from you. So oh, get out of here. So okay. I was reading, I was telling folks, I was reading your book. I was reading your book. And in the nice. back, I was like, oh, there's going to be like, here's where to go in Denver for barbecue. And you're like, my favorite barbecue places. And I was like, and there's no Colorado. <laughs> and that is a victim of circumstance because I did have a Denver place, but they closed. Pandemic got them right before the book came out. So I had to, last edits. I had to change that. Well, I haven't gotten to the Kansas City list. What's on, what's on your Kansas City list, Adrian? So I liked LCs, man. Yeah. Uh, LCs and Gates. Um, I have not been to LCs since LC died. Uh, but my understanding is that the family is keeping it going and yep. it's still high quality. So I, I got to get there and just verify that. But I, I really liked LCs. Well, Adrian, my butt has been a running joke in this in this podcast for several episodes. So I'm sure we'll talk about that before we're done. <laughs> he sent us pictures all weekend of his butt. I did. I did. And I sent pictures of my butt. Why would you do that? Pre-smoker. Oh. Coming out of the smoker. Okay. Not his literal butt. My pork butt. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Adrian has a whole chapter in his book called The Pre primacy of sauce. And I think, Charlie, you should probably read that because we were having an online discussion back and forth about sauce. So yeah. yeah, I make my own rub, the whole deal. So yeah. Yeah. And I was telling Susan, I mean, for me, it depends, right? She said, are you a vinegar or a tomato or a mustard person? I said, depends. Yeah. Depends on what you're using it for. Exactly. Yeah. I'm the same way. So here's where we're at, Adrian. Kevin has read your book and he's got the post-it notes. I have been listening to it on Audible and Charlie's the laggard, but that's normal for the group. So oh, I feel so inadequately prepared. I read it. It's an awesome book. Awesome. Awesome book. And as I think you mentioned in your book, Black Smoke, the number one thing that people always key into out of all those accomplishments is, is well, how'd you get to be a barbecue judge? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I, tell, I mean, people who know that I worked in the White House, they're like, oh, you worked in the White House. That's cool. But you're a barbecue judge. I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> so how does one, I do have to know, how does one get to be a barbecue judge? So it's a funny story. So I was just sitting in Denver reading the newspaper and I was working on my soul food book. So I, I knew I wanted to include a chapter on barbecue because so many soul food restaurants have barbecue as, on the menu. But then I found so much stuff about barbecue. I was like, okay, I need, it needs its own book. So I, I knew that I was going to write about barbecue eventually, but I saw this ad. It said, come be a barbecue judge. This was 2004. Um, and so it was at the Adams County Fairgrounds, just uh, north of Denver. So I went out there. I walked in the room. I was the, you know, there's about 70 people in the room. I was the only dude under 250 pounds. Um, so I saw my future. And that was okay with me. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I thought they were going to teach me how to cook barbecue and all that kind of stuff, but it was really just about process. It's like, uh, this was the Kansas City Barbecue Society. So here are the categories, pork, which is pork shoulder, pork spare ribs, beef, which is brisket, and chicken. Most people make chicken thighs. 
and you judge it on a nine-point scale for taste, texture, and appearance. They go through the very arbitrary rules about how to present it and all this other stuff. Like, for instance, you can only present your barbecue on three certified greens, green leaf lettuce, flat leaf parsley, and cilantro. So if you made the best barbecue in the world and you presented it on collard greens, disqualified. Wow. And then after that, um, yeah, so then they go through it and, you know, you bring, they bring out food so you get the hang of judging. And then after that, you stand up and you say a barbecue oath. I'm not going to repeat it because it's a sacred thing and I don't want your listeners to mock it. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, after that, you get your badge in the mail and then you can judge at any contest. So here's the thing. When I became a judge, uh, judging was um, not as popular as it is now. It, now it's very hard to actually reserve a spot as a judge in a contest because there are so many judges now. Mm. That getting into a contest is like hitting the lottery. You got to be sitting at your computer when the portal opens to get your spot. Oh, interesting. I mean, the premise of the book, and I really enjoyed the book. Uh, the premise of the book talking about how you know Black Americans have not really gotten their due mm-hmm. when it comes to their role in barbecue. Um, when it comes to today, I know you speak a little bit of it that, like you know, like with Food Network and Bobby Flay and all that kind of stuff that you talk about. Do you feel that, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are food companies. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's anything coming in that way? And uh, it, give me an example of what I mean is like uh, uh, Jack Daniels talking about Uncle Nearest and all of that. Do you feel that any companies, and it could be, you know, it could be a food, like Food Network type stuff, media companies or, you know, CPG type companies, do you feel like there's, they're getting closer to recognizing the role of African-Americans? Oh, yeah. Thanks for the question, Kevin. There's a lot of good news on that front. So um, what I would say is this, is that African-Americans for a long time got their due, but it's only recently that they haven't gotten their due. So Mm -hmm. before the 1990s, it would have been weird not to mention a black barbecue person when talking about barbecue in the United States. And this this changes in the 1990s. So the good news is... um, I'm, I'm watching these TV shows now. I'm seeing more African-Americans on these shows. Um, there are several uh, black authored cookbooks that are coming out on barbecue. Uh, Matt Horn has one. Um, Kevin Bloodsoe has one. Um, I know that uh, there's a couple other prominent people that have ones on the way. And then also in the Barbecue Hall of Fame, the American Royal Barbecue Hall of Fame. I've been on the board for the past few years and we've had diverse inductees. So we got Arthur Bryant in. We got uh, Charlie Gates and Ollie Gates, I'm sorry, in, which was crazy that there was a barbecue hall of fame in Kansas City for a decade and those guys weren't in it. Oh, man. Absolutely. Um, Desiree Robinson's the first African-American woman there. She's uh, um, from the Cozy Corner Restaurant in Memphis. And then this year we created a category called the Impact Award, and it goes to the unsung black barbecue cooks. So I I think there's a ways to go. I think we could still do more, but um, there's good news there. Cool. This is like a like a side question. And you mentioned it a little bit in your book, but I find it interesting. I've seen data for African-Americans. The amount of vegan vegetarians is 8 percent. And for the rest of the population, it's around 3 percent. And you're seeing a lot of and I know that in your book, you talk about your experience with jackfruit barbecue and all that stuff. No, there's a there's a connection because you're seeing more plant based barbecue. Now, that's heresy for a lot of people. But you mentioned jackfruit. Mm -hmm. But I've been in African-American restaurants where they're using um, roots like lotus root or burdock and shaping it to look like a rib tip and then um, smoking it and then adding sauce. So you, you see that happening. Um, and whoever figures that out, man, that is just gold. 
one of the most surprising um, aspects of my research as I got into this field because, you know, I just thought vegan was a complete departure from soul food. But if you go back and look at what enslaved people were actually eating during the week, it was pretty much seasonal vegetables. If there was meat, it was just to flavor the vegetables. It was not meat as an entree as we think of it. And it was really only on the weekends and special occasions that people got meat in the way that we think of it today as part of a meal. And even going back to West Africa, most of the cuisines are very plant-based. Um, and so you see that thread throughout. And um, I think there's, I think it's more popular now because there's growing health concerns. And so more pe- people want to eat healthier food. And there's also an ideological aspect of this because there's an unfortunate narrative about soul food that it is the white person's garbage. It's the stuff that white people, slaveholders didn't want, which is not accurate. Um, that's a piece of the story, but um, it's not really accurate. Because what you do is you go, when you go back and you look at the reports and the and, and things that were going on there, white people are eating the same food. Um, my takeaway is that um, we invest a lot into this narrative about this whole food wholly created for black people. But the foodways of the South is really more about class and place than race. Mm. Pretty much people of the same class in the same place were eating the same foods. Now, they weren't eating them together because of a race, uh, but they were pretty much eating the same foods. And then um, there's also an ideological part about uh, people want to reconnect to West African food waste, so eat the food of our ancestors. So it's a way of decolonizing the plate. Mm. So there are different ways that people arrive at this place. Um, I think some of the most creative things that we're seeing in food is in the vegan and vegetarian space. And then looking at the history, veganism and vegetarianism is not a departure from soul food. It's really a homecoming. I don't know if you if you know Ibrahim Bashir, who owns uh, A Dozen Cousins, which is a packaged bean and rice product that talks about the African diaspora. So he was a guest, gosh, mm-hmm. quite a few episodes ago, but exactly what you're saying, which he even mentions the diaspora as he talks about stuff. So so I, I call that food sovereignty. Um, I, I think, you know, this idea that people are taking control of their food, like how they procure their food, how they grow it. And people are now trying to present West Africa, instead of reinterpreting West African food in a an American lens. Mm. They're trying to present that West African food in a way that's authentic to that culture. You know, one of the things um, I didn't expect the book to start with the Native American and indigenous people in barbecue when I picked the book up. Part of the book where you talk about Oklahoma and the Native American population and the African American population for a variety of reasons, living together very closely um, and emerging of the infamous Dave coming out of that heritage. And that was just something I was not aware of. Um, and I found that really, really fascinating. That was a surprising start for me as well, because I didn't think I was going to start the book that way. Uh, the way I went into writing this book, wanting to definitively prove that it was from West Africa, uh, you know, and, and just do this, cross my arms across my chest and say Wakanda forever. But um, I am a person who's has to follow the evidence. Not everybody does that. And so um, it just it's just clear to me that um, 400 years ago, Africans were not cooking that way when it came to meat, at least the Africans that were first brought from West Africa to the Americas. Um, So you have to look at um, Senegal and Nigeria. And even to this day, most of the African um, barbecue that we speak of is like quick grilling over skewers over high heat. And Europeans had been in West Africa at least a century before coming to the Americas. So if they had... Because they took they drew pictures of that cooking. And so if that cooking was happening in West Africa, how come nobody reported it? 
So I've taken some heat from some people, primarily African-Americans, um, who believe that I shouldn't argue that point. Um, and I leave the door open. I'm just saying, look, uh, with the available evidence we have now, it looks like it was Native American in origin, and that was a foundation built upon. And, f- and secondly, I don't know why that's such a bad thing. Well, as you know, based on your your work and being a, a judge and, and working on the Hall of Fame, people take their barbecue very seriously and are very passionate about their personal barbecue story. Yes, yeah. Um, but one thing, one of the things that I do in the book is I have stories of people who acknowledge the debt owed to uh, uh, Native Americans. And, you know, for a long time, even some black people called barbecue cooking the Indian way. We went backward. Now, what about going forward? Where do you think barbecue is going in general and even soul food in general? Where do you see that going in the future? Yeah. So uh, right now in, in soul food, let's start there. The current trends are you still have traditional food that has a lot of cultural momentum. So that's being expressed. You have what I call down home healthy. So the idea is to swap out the sugar, the salt and the fat, maybe have, you know, look for alternative healthy alternatives there. And then vegan is a subset of that. Um, and then you've got a lot of interesting fusion stuff happening where other ethnic cuisines are being interplayed with soul food. So, for instance, soul food egg rolls. Um hmm. And things mm-hmm. like that. And then you've got upscale soul food. So these like use of heritage meat, heirloom vegetables, emphasis on presentation. Mm. Uh, so that's what's, that's what's playing out in soul food right now. But I, I see the vegan and vegetarian getting a larger share of that space. Um, and in barbecue, you've already seen a movement towards healthier barbecue. So in addition to the jackfruit and the roots that I talk about, you're seeing more turkey Mm-hmm. Um, in African-American joints. So um, in Eastern North Carolina, you walk into a place, you can get a chopped turkey sandwich, which except for a light color, tastes just like the pork because it's seasoned the same way and cooked the same way. Mm. Pulled turkey in Memphis. Uh, you go to Southside Chicago, you get turkey tips and turkey hot link sausages. So you're seeing that. Oh, and turkey uh, ribs. And I know people are like, dude, what are you talking about? Turkeys don't have ribs. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's the, uh, they take the shoulder blade Okay. And they cut enough meat around the shoulder blade so it looks like a, a baby back rib. Oh, right. Um, right. And you're seeing that in more and more black joints. It hurts my heart uh, just and, a little bit to hear you talk about that. Just a little bit. I got <laughs> to say, it hurts my Charlie, heart. Charlie, no turkey bit. tips for you instead no of a pork tips. butt? No tur- and, and, and Eastern North Carolina is where I was really, I mean, I spent a lot of time there. And that's kind of the, I mean, I, I come from Kansas City, but I spent a lot of time in Eastern North Carolina. And it's the fusion of those two that I love. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm having a hard time yeah. with turkey. I'm having a hard time with uh, it. Yeah. Now you start. Yeah. You just see it in a lot of places now. <laughs> I think one unfortunate aspect, and I have to choose my words carefully because I know this is going to offend some people, but um, Central Texas barbecue is now the default barbecue style around the world. Nope. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, when I say Central Texas, I'm not talking about that authentic Central Texas. It's the gussied up. Yeah. version of that that's now the standard around the world. I was recently in Dubai, Cairo, Kuwait, Dublin, Ireland. They all have Central Texas barbecue joints. Hmm. Um, and so to me, it's unfortunate because I think there's a very beautiful and diverse world of barbecue, but these other um, styles are being crowded out. And it has an effect on African-Americans because most African-Americans are not cooking that way. And so people have this notion of that's what barbecue is. And they come into a black joint and don't see exactly what they're used to seeing on TV or in magazines. And they're asking, where's the brisket or whatever. And so these African-American barbecuers who, you know, made their trade on pork, chicken, hot links, things like that, have a choice to make. You know, do I say, hey, this is the menu? Or do they say, okay, I got to adapt to where the consumer market is going. 
So is that like a like big big barbecue brands pushing that? What's causing that? Do you think that Central Texas push? Uh, I think it's a confluence of several things. First of all, I think um, it's the the rise of uh, Aaron Franklin as a dominant mm-hmm. barbecue personality. And he did something very smart rather than shrouding what he did in secrecy. He says, I'm just going to show you what I do. And, um, you know, he caught, he's caught lightning in a bottle um, at the right time and um, it just exploded. So there was a, uh, and then you had the barbecue pitmasters show mm-hmm. and most of the barbecue that's been presented on those shows and in other TV shows has been that central Texas thing. And then also I think a huge factor is Daniel Vaughn, Mm-hmm. Uh, with Texas Monthly, um, the, that was a stroke of genius for Texas Texas Monthly to hire uh, a, a barbecue beat writer, basically, yeah. and his influence is a worldwide as well. So, I, I last year I just said, "Hey, Kansas City, y'all need to step up your game, and yeah. y'all need to have a barbecue beat right." Memphis, yeah. all these other barbecue regions with a storied history could do the same thing, but they don't. There you go, Charlie. Charlie, your- no, it's a good call. It's a good call. Absolutely, future role. Adrian, I know that um, you are busy, but I just want to thank you for joining us. Always fascinating, and also. To our listeners, if you have not seen High on the Hog on Netflix, um, it's a great show. And Adrian is featured quite heavily in episode three. And thank you again for all your time um, with us this afternoon. Yeah, it's an honor to have you on the program. No, good to be with you. Boy, was that a great conversation. Oh, man, it's I'm in awe. I mean, it's just humbling to have him on the show. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now I need to read yeah. the soul food book. Yeah, the soul food book. And, you know, um, he also wrote a book on African-American chefs in every presidential administration. President. Yeah. The first time I met Adrian was um, at an event. It was a fundraiser for the Southern Foodways Alliance. It was called Camp Bacon. And he had just published that book on the, the presidential kitchens. And he was telling a story, I think if I get it right, that FDR, when Churchill came over, had his chef prepare pig's knuckles. For Churchill, which I love that idea of Winston Churchill. You know, I picture the man with a cigar in his teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he's got, he's just a wealth of, of knowledge and, um, right. and, and interesting things. Yeah. It's great stuff. Well, and I love what he was talking about in terms of fusion and, and seeing all the different cultures come together in a variety of different ways. And, yeah. you know, what we've seen in, in consumer trends and research is clearly the desire for more global flavors. And that's just going to continue as we see uh, rising ethnic diversity and different pockets coming together in different places in the country and sharing their recipes and food culture. I think the thing that's so great about it is that anybody can participate in this, right? Yeah. I mean, think about what's gone on with the sales of smokers and grills and all of the paraphernalia that goes into, um, you know, barbecuing. And everybody, ha- like you, Charlie, you have your own recipe, your own approach, your experimentation with it. Right. And it's just, it's fun, right? So there's room for everyone. And the purists can be the purists, but I just think it's why it's kind of taken storm with, with the consumer. And clearly there's that tension between, well... Um, you know, it just, it was like fingernails on the chalkboard hearing him talk about turkey and jackfruit for me. <laughs> but you survived it. That's just me. You survived it. I did. I did. He did a great job. I always learned something from Adrian. And, and I, what I also love about him is, is that he really goes for the truth. Like he said, he, it's not popular with some folks for him to say West Africa may not have been the source necessarily. Um, he, he just, he digs into it and, and presents it all. And it's just so well done and fascinating. He's just got great spirit and a genuine approach. He's a true researcher. He's a true researcher. Oh, I love it. Oh, my heart. (laughs) All right. On today's episode of what the food, 
Uh, Kevin, our benevolent food scientist, is going to share with us a bit more about barbecue. And it's absolutely perfect after Adrian was on the show and provided his perspective. So, Kevin, what are the fun facts you have to share today about barbecue? Okay, so I have a couple that I always think about, which really does not get me invited to barbecues. (laughs) One is where charcoal came from. Charcoal briquettes came from. Hmm. Charcoal briquettes were invented, basically, by... Henry Ford. Hmm. So Henry Ford, when he was building his car, I mean, the original cars, Model A, Model T, built mostly of wood. So he was very much like, got to use the waste. So he wanted to recycle all the wood that he was putting in there. So he enlisted the help of his cousin's husband, Edward G. Kingsford. How about that? Who was a real estate agent in Michigan, Susan. So, and yes. And so he got uh, like the supplies of wood and all this kind of stuff. And then uh, Kingsford, he actually uh, got a bunch of of the timber from the Iron Mountain in Michigan. I did not know this. And a sawmill. And then they had all this leftover bits and pieces from making the car. And they said, mm-hmm. we've got to do something with this. So they compressed it all together with glue and, and, you know, all the extra bits, made charcoal briquettes, and then spun the business off into Kingsford charcoal. I had no idea. That's amazing. Yes. So... So look at that. It's a a car thing and a Michigan thing. So it's like, that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like they should talk about that at Greenfield Village at the Henry Ford Museum, and they don't. Yeah, no, Mm. it's true. The other one I have that I always think about is where Weber grills originally came from. They were invented in the 40s, suburban Chicago. There was a guy by the name of George Stephen, and he was a welder in suburban Chicago. And he worked for Weber Brothers Metal Spinning Company. And they produced harbor buoys. Mm. So if you've ever been out by the harbor, you see those buoys out there in the middle of the harbor bobbing up and down. One day he decided to, I'm going to cut one in half. And and then he put some grates along the bottom and he turned it into a grill. And basically the thing that we think of now as a Weber grill is a metal harbor buoy. That is fascinating because there's all of this mythology around the kettle and and the, yep. the circular heat and all of that that, it, you know, you would think, okay, well, this is clearly something that an engineer came up with and developed just for grilling. And now we know it's just half of a half of a buoy. This is amazing. Who didn't have a Weber grill in their backyard? Well, yeah, and that plus, I mean, I, I cannot separate the idea of what a hamburger tastes like and lighter fluid tastes like because my dad used to <laughs> pour... <laughs> <laughs> enough on it to just you know so good yeah mm. he wasn't big on the charcoal chimney huh because that was that that was a revelation for me getting a charcoal chimney instead of the lighter fluid i had never even heard of a charcoal chimney until i was an adult i did not know yeah. it existed i thought everything just tasted like butane <laughs> yeah same thing for me i mean we we would we would we would have a steak and it would taste like butane there was so much put on there right hey thanks again to general mills for sponsoring three squares if you would like to be a sponsor you can reach out to us at three squares mail at gmail.com. That's the numeral three squares mail at gmail.com. And listen to this. In addition to reaching our audience of food system leaders, you'll also get 90 minutes alone with the three squares. So send us a note, reach out to us, three squares mail at gmail.com. I do like how we're going to get 90 minutes alone. I know. <laughs> Nine some minutes alone with us. No, I like it. Leave it. Yeah. Leave it. I think you leave it in. It's provocative. Most people only get an hour, but for you, you get 90 minutes. (laughs) Right. We'll talk about Charlie's produce proclivities. (laughs) Three Squares Dishing on the Food Industry is created by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. 
Thanks to our producers, Dave Beezing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. And of course, most of all, thanks to you for listening. If you like the show, please give us a rating and review. Follow for future episodes, share it with your friends, and you can follow us on LinkedIn. We're at Three Squares Podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll set the table again soon on Three Squares.